Hi, how's it going? I have uh, titled this talk, I Am He, and hopefully we'll see why at the end. Uh, my name is Peter, and it's my great pleasure to be closing out Luke for us today. I briefly mentioned my conversion story earlier. I, um, I became a Christian in my late teens. Prior to that, Jesus was not my Lord. I went to church, but to be honest, I was totally indifferent to the whole God thing until uh, Jesus saved me. And all of us have our own story and our own conclusions about who Jesus is. And uh, today, I'm excited because we get to explore that together. So we're now at the point in Luke's Gospel where Jesus' ministry here on earth has almost come to an end. Very soon, he will ascend back into heaven, having achieved his Father's will. Uh, But before he leaves, he's spending some quality time with his disciples, the men and women who are going to be left behind. He's preparing them for the mammoth mission that they have in front of them, taking the good news of Jesus to the world. But the disciples are a bit of an unstable, motley crew, which I take great, great comfort in. They have a bit of a reputation for lacking understanding and, uh, and, and being fearful and scared and not really getting what Jesus' mission is all about. Doubt was lingering in their minds about who Jesus really is, even while he was with them. I think we all fall on the scale of doubt somewhere. We either outright doubt Jesus and his ministry as the biggest hoax in the history of the world, or we profess faith in Jesus, but with all the anxieties of life, that faith is sometimes replaced with fear, trepidation, uncertainty of who he is in a world seemingly gone mad. Today's text will encourage us as we see how Jesus conquers our doubts. But before we get started, let's come before our great God in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you that we get to open your word in the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we commit our time to you. May it be a great time, a time of great transformation in our lives as the Holy Spirit illuminates your great truth in our hearts and minds. For your glory and our joy we pray. Amen. Well, recently, Lisa and I were in New York and we went to the Museum of Modern Art. And there was one thing that I wanted to see and it was this ball bearing. It's a self-aligning ball bearing. I apologise, the engineering nerd comes out of me from time to time. And so I was really excited to see this, but alas, it wasn't there. So for the next three hours, my beloved had to drag me around the MoMA Museum like an an ungrateful child at the shopping centre. (coughs) However, there was one painting that struck me. It was a painting by Claude Monet called Water Lilies. The painting is stunning to look at. What's cool is that the painting is a triptych. It's three paintings next to one another, and to truly view its splendour, you would need to step back and take in the view of all three. In our passage today, Jesus gets his disciples to step back, revealing God's triptych, his big picture fulfilled in Jesus. It's possibly the biggest penny-dropping moment in the history of the world. You might remember back in your algebra class when finally the the penny drops. Finally, the veil is removed from your eyes and you see the answer clear as crystal. Well, today's text is kind of like that. You see, the disciples' confidence in Jesus 
was shattered when he was crucified. And they doubt him. Is he really the great Messiah he said he was? The great saviour of the world? How can that be when he's dead? Doubt is a funny thing. I think it quietly, it pollutes our minds. It doesn't take much to rattle us and we start to question what it is that we believe. We get a little shake up or we go through a tough time in our lives and Jesus feels it at best distant. Our text is encouraging for us no matter where we're at on that scale. We will see how Jesus takes his disciples on a ride from doubt to faith. So let's start at the beginning of that journey and ask, How does Jesus conquer our doubts? And to answer that, I think we need to do three things. Firstly, we need to explore doubt. Secondly, we need to understand faith. And finally, we need to be empowered for hope and be empowered. So firstly, let's explore doubt. Today we see the the men and women who have been with Jesus for the last three years. They've been watching him preach and teach and heal all over the place, and expecting him to change their lives. But now he's dead, and they're suffering from doubt. Who is he? Is he the Messiah? We'll take a look at verse 36 through to 38. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? These are not positive words. They're not words you would use to describe people who are anticipating Jesus' arrival. Startled, frightened, troubled. These words are all synonymous for great anxiety and it's doubt. It's doubt that's feeding it. Jesus finds them all cowering in a house with the doors locked. Can you blame them? Their leader has been killed and they think they're next. I remember learning at school that many ancient cultures believed that the earth was flat and that when you got to the horizon you would simply fall off. But at some stage somebody figured out latitude and longitude so that ships could navigate the ocean and in that process the early explorers learned that the earth wasn't flat but that it actually kept going. I think the disciples have had this view. They've reached the edge and they're about to fall. If we explore their doubt, we see that as they stand on the cliff, their conclusion is that Jesus is dead. That's a logical conclusion They watched him get murdered. However, their conclusion that Jesus is dead is based on an assumption. The assumption being that dead people don't rise. That's why people think that Christians are crazy. You guys believe in a fairy tale played out in a storybook. It's a nice tradition. It's good for plays at school every now and then. But it has no relevance to life. Because it's a myth. Dead people don't rise. You can see them disheartened, looking off the cliff. Their confidence in Jesus is shot. All of their faith was in the one man they thought they were safe with. 
Now, our minds, I know mine certainly is, they're like little battlefields. There's always a war going on, things buzzing around in our heads, things that keep us up at night. Now, what school do the kids go to? Can we afford it? What if they're bullied? How can I pay off my mortgage? This thing is is killing me. I'm drowning in it. What do we do if we lose our source of income? Do we have enough super? Am I ever going to get seven hours of sleep ever again? Will we ever have kids? Will the relationship with our spouse improve? Will I ever get a spouse? Is God even listening? The mind is a busy, busy thing. It can be a labyrinth of deep anxiety and worry. It's like anxiety is the compass of our lives. I think for some of us there are times when God feels distant. He's like the watchmaker who he lovingly uh, designs a watch, he, he builds it, he creates it, he winds it up and then he lets it tick away on its own. He just steps back. It's hard. It's hard to see beyond the tragedies of now to the hope and the magnificence that awaits those who are in Christ. This stuff robs us of that future hope. But this text is encouraging. Don't come to the conclusion that Jesus is dead or doesn't care. When the storms of life brew, look to the resurrected Jesus. Don't let your doubts put him back in the tomb. I am he. I am alive. I'd like to spend some time looking at the evidence of the resurrection. The author Luke placed a huge emphasis on the disciples seeing and touching the risen Jesus after his death. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. Verse 39, Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. Verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and he ate the broiled fish in their presence. Now, Tim Keller, who's out here recently, a great theologian from the US, I think is very helpful here. He says of this account, if Luke was writing a legend or a fairy tale, as people purport, he wouldn't write it like this. This account has, has details, seemingly small and insignificant details. I mean, who cares if the fish was broiled or fried? You see, you don't write legends like this. That's because this is not legend writing. It's a claim. It's a claim that Jesus was with his disciples, as many as 500 at a time, after his death. And they all saw him. And this, friends, is the first such claim in the history of the world. And that makes Jesus unique. But why is this here? Why did Luke report this? What is so significant about Jesus returning to his disciples? The significance is that everything, everything that these disciples are about to preach and teach to the world hinges on this fact. Christianity stands and falls on this fact being true. There can be no doubt about it. 
Jesus rose from the dead just like he said he would. If Jesus did not rise and come back to life in his same body, he was defeated when he died and our fears and doubts are justified. They are alone, they're alone, we're alone, we have no hope. And Jesus is the biggest raving lunatic of all time. But if this is true, if Jesus was risen to life as the Bible claims he was, then friends, our lives are changed forever. Their lives are changed forever. If this is true, then everything else that Jesus taught is also true. And he is the great Messiah, the Saviour of the world, just as he said he was. Jesus proves that he is alive to deal with their doubting minds. If they are going to be his disciples, they must get this. The truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the centre point, not only for their salvation, but the salvation of the rest of the world. The resurrection proves that Christians have hope. Paul articulates this in Romans 10. It reads, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does it say? You will be saved. This is why Jesus went to so much trouble to prove to the disciples that he's alive. Their doubt is unjustified. One does. One does rise from the dead. The God-man, Jesus Christ, For the disciples, their rollercoaster ride from doubt to faith has begun. Jesus rises from the dead and shows them the earth isn't flat. It keeps going. It's round. There's hope. But is the resurrection enough? Is knowledge of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus enough to conquer our doubts? And the answer is no. The second thing needed to conquer doubt is an understanding of faith. Reading from verse 44, he said to them, that's Jesus speaking to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Now it might be the Aussie, Aussie in me, but I was sitting at home trying to imagine this moment and I pictured Jesus in the outback somewhere Sitting, on a camp, sitting around a campfire on a tree stump with his Bible open, teaching the disciples. And he has them captivated. These men were Jews, and so it's likely that they regularly attended synagogue where a teacher would get up and they'd read from a scroll, maybe from Isaiah or Leviticus or a psalm. And so these guys would have been familiar with the scriptures. And here Jesus says that all of it, all of it is fulfilled in me. It's all pointing to me. He connects the three major segments of the Old Testament to himself. I am the fulfilment. You can almost hear their minds ticking over. The minds of the disciples, they're, they're moving, the cogs are turning, they're starting to connect the dots. But Jesus provides the cogs with the oil they need in order for them to understand their faith. Verse 45, then he opened, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name 
to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. I, I want you to imagine that you're standing at the edge of a bungee jumping platform, 300 metres high, and you have a lion belting down on you. And you, you have moments to choose from one of the three bungee lines lying on the ground. Only one of them is secured. So you grab one. You grab one, you take a leap of faith, and you jump. When Jesus was crucified, the disciples felt like they had grabbed the wrong line. The penny hasn't dropped. They need to understand their faith in order to conquer their doubt. And so Jesus holds a Bible study with them and he, he's the one who switches on the light in their hearts and minds so that they can understand who he is. Have you ever wondered how students at universities and some of the best scholars in the world, they can study the Bible and theology and yet not believe in Jesus? Have you ever heard anyone say, yeah, I read the Bible and I got nothing I've got nothing. That's because our faith is not primarily an intellectual exercise. It is predicated totally on the work of Jesus opening our minds to understand who he is. It is the work of God to overcome doubt in our hearts and minds. I was reading an article this week uh, by the president of the Secular Society at the University of Melbourne, he's a staunch atheist, and he says, Christianity makes a very bold claim that all humans are eternally lost unless they surrender themselves to the redeeming power of Christ. As an atheist, I think this claim is false. But if this claim were true, I would very much want to be convinced of that fact, as would many of my fellow atheists. And that is pretty typical of us humans. I want to be convinced. Show me the proof. Show me the evidence beyond all doubt. I want to feel it with my own hands. And don't get me wrong, it's certainly, certainly called. We are certainly called to study the Scriptures diligently. So calling Ephesians, that's how we mature in our faith. We should explore the evidence of the resurrected Jesus as we have done today, but primarily Primarily the opening of our minds to come to an understanding of faith is the work of Jesus in our hearts and minds. He opens the blinds and lets the light in. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus is the author. He's the author of our faith. And I want to ask you guys, even if you're mature Christians or not, how many of us actually ask for this illumination? that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds. I doubt, I doubt, Lord, help me to believe. When Jesus opens their minds, he, he reveals that I am the suffering Messiah that all the Scripture is pointing to. You can stop looking for another Saviour. We can stop looking for another Saviour and believe. Fulfilment has come. We can't underestimate how radical this revelation must have been for the disciples, especially that Jesus is the suffering, the suffering Messiah. Earlier in this chapter, the two men on the road to Emmaus, they're walking along and Jesus appears, but they're kept from recognising him. 
and with their faces downcast, they say, our leader is dead, but we had hoped he was the one who was going to save Israel. They had hoped because they had been anticipating the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah of the Christ was the one who was going to save Israel from foreign domination and oppression and establish a kingdom for them. So it's no wonder they feel like they've grabbed the wrong line and taken an ill-fated leap. And one of my favourite movies of all time, and I'm sorry, I usually carry a red beard, but it's Braveheart. It's the Scottish bloody me. <clears throat> the premise of the movie is that the people of Scotland are fighting for their freedom from England. And William Wallace is the man who's going to do it. He's going to redeem them and save them from foreign domination. He paints his face, dresses in a skirt, jumps on a horse, and he leads an army of Scotsmen off the wall with arrows and spears. Is that what Jesus was like? Another William Wallace. Well, the scriptures paint a very different picture of the Messiah. Isaiah was written roughly 700 years before Christ with remarkable accuracy. Remarkable. Reads in chapter 53, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, despised, rejected, and we held him in low esteem. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sin, and through his suffering we are healed. Through his suffering we are healed. By our sin we have offended our holy creator. His nature is to hate sin and to punish it. And we all stand guilty of it. That Jesus is the great Messiah who suffers so that we don't have to. He wasn't another William Wallace, despised, hated, rejected, killed. He endured it because sin must be dealt with and your God would rather step into your place and die for you than live without you. That is how we as followers of Christ have peace with God. We look back to the cross and the empty tomb. We read the scriptures and see that victory was achieved. And now we can look forward to the hope of our own resurrection and joy in being with Jesus forever. Friends, even in the anxieties of life that cause us to doubt, we can be assured that in Christ we have grabbed the right line. Praise God. That's good news. Today we are presented with the same hope the disciples were. And despite what anyone says, we've all grabbed the line, taken a leap of faith, Maybe for you it's money or your job, your spouse, whatever it is. We've all put our faith in something. And at the end of the day, if the object of your faith is not Jesus Christ, you will fall. The Bible is very clear about that. And moving on, Jesus says that now you can go. Go and tell the world that doubts me. Tell them about your hope, about your faith. Tell them that the most violent act in the history of the world marks the greatest act of love 
in the history of the world. I just want to draw our attention to this little adjective in verse 47, all, all nations. This is a beautiful little revelation. Jesus' saving ministry is not just for the Jews, for the disciples that are sitting around him as they thought. His saving plan includes all nations. No one is excluded. Doubt can be removed. Forgiveness can be enjoyed by all tribes, all tongues, all nations. That's people in Manly, even in Wollongong, Perth, China, the US, Africa. Friends, the kingdom of heaven is not an exclusive club for the elite. It's an inclusive club for the broken. That's the news of the gospel. The world needs to know this great news. There is great urgency about this. But we won't be alone. And so lastly and briefly, be empowered. Jesus says, be empowered. Verse 47 reads, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is when Jesus points the finger at them. You, you are witnesses of this. You are witnesses of these great things. God's great big picture, his triptych has been revealed to you. You, ladies and gentlemen, live in a unique time in history. Everybody throughout the history of the world to this point have been longing to see and understand what has been revealed to you. And after I ascend, Jesus said, after I ascend back into heaven, I will send God the Holy Spirit to guide you, to comfort you. He's a seal guaranteeing our inheritance to empower us, to take this good news to the world. I will do the work through you. And this is how our Lord works. He does extraordinary things through ordinary people because He's with them. He gives us the strength we need to overcome our doubts. And being brutally honest, not in my wildest dreams did I ever believe that I would stand at a pulpit and share the gospel. My dad always said I'd be a priest and we laughed about it. I doubt myself. I've never been terribly confident in my own ability. I am my greatest critic. I've struggled with anxiety greatly over the years and a debilitating fear of looking like a fool in front of people. I'm an ordinary bloke. I'm not an academic. I sat on the lounge just the other week with Lisa in tears. I can't do this, is what I said, writing sermons, Bible college, preaching. I don't have what it takes. I've made so many mistakes and I'm still making them. But this text is so encouraging that the Lord does his thing despite our brokenness. For the disciples, the penny has dropped. They've stepped back and seen Monet's water lilies in all its glory. God's beautiful triptych of salvation has been revealed. Their hope in Christ, the good news that they will go out and die for. The first picture depicting the risen Jesus with nail-scarred hands, 
showing the disciples that he has risen. The second picture depicting that Jesus opening the Bible, showing them that it's all fulfilled in me. The good news is all about me. And the third picture of the triptych depicting the tongues of fire. God the Holy Spirit descending onto the disciples, empowering them for life and the mission to take the good news of Jesus to the world. Can you see the progression in the narrative? Jesus puts them in a car and he takes them on a journey. Their original fear, anxiety, doubt is exchanged for worship, great joy and praising in verse 52. Luke's gospel ends with the disciples on their knees worshipping Jesus as God, totally filled with joy. And so, how does Jesus conquer our doubt? By revealing beyond doubt that I am the great Messiah who rose. I am the great Messiah who fulfills the scriptures. And I am the great Messiah who empowers you. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father in heaven, we, we thank you that you did not leave us dead in our sin. Thank you that we have peace with you through Jesus. Thank you that we receive this peace as a gift. It's free and it's enjoyed in Jesus' name. It is a beautiful gift that removes all doubt. We pray, dear Father, that you would encourage us by the power of the Holy Spirit to come to a new understanding of Jesus Christ, the God-man, in whose name we pray. Amen.